Let's begin with a question this morning. Do you know what to do when you attend a baseball game? Do you know what to do? Like, pick, picture your, your favorite stadium, your favorite team, if you're a baseball person. Do you know what to do? You go in, I'm sure, you, you, you know how to pay attention to, to the game. You, you know when to applaud and when to really scream out and shout. And you also know which snack to get and which ones to avoid. Do you know what to do when you attend a backyard barbecue? Chances are you do. You, you know that, that you should probably uh, be mindful of what you need to bring, and you bring that. that uh, there is that one little questionable spot going to a backyard barbecue. Do you go around the side of the house, or do you go through the front door? And hopefully the host has an indicated which is the preferred way. Do you know what to do when you attend a funeral? You know, that's something we kind of learn along the way, isn't it? We pay attention to the people around us, but even still as, as adults, we can come in and, and we're not sure. Do we laugh and celebrate? Do we cry and mourn? How do we show ourselves to be empathetic? Do we know what to do? Well, do we know what to do when we come to worship? Do we know what to do when we come to a worship service? And some of you are going, absolutely. You go in through the main doors, you make a hard right to the donut counter. Some of us come to worship because we so look forward to the chit-chat that we can have with people we've known, or people maybe that we've just met and we long for that human connection. Some of us know what to do in that we come to worship and we come expecting to pray or to sing, maybe even to learn. Sometimes we might find ourselves that we come to conform to the pattern of the other people around us. Maybe that we've conformed to a pattern in the past and it's almost become like a habit. We don't even think about it. We can come in and we're just here. We begin a, yet another service and we find ourselves at the end of the hour and change, and we've just done the same thing we did the previous week. I mentioned a name to you last week, uh, Richard Foster. And I, by the way, you, you know that in this series that we're going through these psalms that uh, we've been focusing on some psalms that mention spiritual habits, and there's a book by Richard Foster that Gosh, I just cannot recommend enough. It's Celebration of Discipline. And if you want a book to really help you in some of these patterns, I, I encourage you. It's still fresh and relevant, connected to even today. Um, but here's what he had to say about worshiping uh, in his definition. He said, worship is human response to divine initiative. Worship is human response to divine initiative, that God has moved, God has revealed Himself, God has acted, God has shown uh, to the world who He is. And then worship is simply responding to what God has done, what God has accomplished, what God has revealed. And so, with that definition, he talks about people as we come together for worship, and by the way, worship is all week long, it's not just a Sunday morning, that we can respond to the 
divine initiative uh, on a Tuesday at 2.37 in the afternoon. At any time, we are called to respond to what God has done. But with the definition, Foster goes on to say that we can approach worship with a holy expectancy. That if God is a God who moves and acts, that God initiates, and ours is a response, we can come to worship expecting that, that God is moving, that God is present, um, that we will engage God in those moments, even more that God will engage us. And so here we are in our summer sermon series, Summer in the Psalms, and today we're looking at Psalm 98, and it's all about, um, uh, it's all about praising and worshiping God. I was grateful for Nathan's call to worship this morning because I also wanted to make a comment here at the beginning of the message. It may be that you arrived on this day and you just don't feel it. In fact, maybe your heart is more full of lament, maybe suffering and sorrow, maybe even distance from God. Maybe you don't even sense God being around you or uh, that you've been in a season that you feel disconnected from God. Do you know that, and we've mentioned this before, that in the book of Psalms that there are more psalms of lament than there are psalms of praise. God allows us to, He welcomes us to bring our songs, our heart of lament to Him. In fact, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 88. It's a psalm of lament, and there is not one positive word in it. And maybe that's how you're feeling this morning. Let me say two things to you. One is, even though we may not know that you're that person, we want to make sure you know you're recognized, that you're welcome here. This is the place for all of us to be. And the other thing I would say to us is that, that I trust in the midst of this time with that holy expectancy that God will demonstrate His love that God is at work in each one of our lives, that He's bringing His goodness and His grace, and that He takes the initiative toward each one of us. And so our psalm this morning is going to be Psalm 98, and I went ahead and printed out the psalm for you. It was easier than juggling the slides back and forth because it all just didn't fit appropriately, and in this way everyone has it. You can take it with you. Um, but we're in Psalm 98, and if you're participating in worship at home, really encourage you, go grab a Bible. Open it up to Psalm 88 that you might be able to follow along. Let's receive the Word of God this morning. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre. And with the, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it 
Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. May God bless the reading of His Word, and may God bless us as we come under His Word today. We heard uh, Foster's definition of worship. There's a place in the New Testament where Jesus actually speaks to the quality of worship. If, if our response is, uh, if worship is our response to the divine initiative, then how might we, what kind of qualities would we look for in that worship? There's this story in the Gospel of John, chapter 4. Maybe you've, you've read it before. You've heard someone else speak it to you. It's a, a, a story where Jesus comes and he meets with the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. If you were a Jewish person at the time and, and you were expecting the Messiah to come and to speak, the last person you would think that this Messiah would speak to would be a, Jew, a, a Samaritan woman. Uh, that is just nonsensical. Why would the Messiah ever speak to her? But here's Jesus at the well, just the two of them, and they have this interesting conversation. We don't have time to go through the whole thing, but it comes down to this one point where Jesus, with his insight, his prophetic insight, he says something that seems to make the Samaritan woman feel incredibly vulnerable. And she does what a lot of us might do in that moment. She deflects. She turns the conversation. Okay, enough of that. Let's talk about this. And she makes a statement, something to the or, 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 order of, well, you, you Jewish people, you, you worship in Jerusalem. You say that's where you should worship. And, and we say it's on Mount Gerizim. She pulls the religious card. She backs away from the intimacy and says, let's talk religion in, instead. Jesus, of course, never loses control of the conversation. Here's what he says. In part, he says this to her, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him, to worship in spirit and in truth. So, what does that mean? That means to, to worship from the inside. It, it's not just about form or, or, or um, uh, uh, some geography or, or a style of building. It's about the inside. It's about who we are. This, and to do that in truth, that it's authentic and real, that there's this authentic response to what God has accomplished, what God has moved in our midst. These are the qualities that Jesus calls out in worship. So, this morning, let's see how this is illustrated in Psalm 98. What we have here in the psalm are three stanzas, and on your printed-out page, it shows what those stanzas are. So, verses 1 through, um, one through 3, and then 4 through 6, and 7 through 9. Um, uh, and then each one, what it does is it expands the picture of what worship is. Here's how we're going to walk through our message today. By the way, if you're a chart person, this is your Sunday, all right? If you're not a chart person, what a great day to become a chart person. We'll put the chart right up here on the screen. There you go. <laughs> you chart people right now are going, yes, thank you. So what we'll do is we'll go through those three stanzas, and then we're going to look at what the stanzas 
have to say about what's the what, who's the who, and what's the why. So, with regard to worship, what's the what, like what actions, what does worship look like, um, what kind of response is, is God excited about, um, who's the who, and then uh, what's the why. So, let's go ahead and do that. Let's go ahead and jump in. We'll go ahead and begin with that first stanza, uh, Psalm 98, verses 1 through 3. Here's the what. The what is sing. Here's the action that the people are called to sing. You know, there's something powerful in singing that just isn't achievable in speaking. Singing seems to have this power to bring both the head and the heart together. In singing, we don't just sit around and analyze or consider or um, uh, evaluate. We engage. We engage our whole self, the, the lyrics with the words, the music with the melody, and it allows us to bring thoughts and emotions together at the same time. There's also something else that's powerful about singing. We can engage together. The music can draw our voices so that we can sing with one voice together with others, something that's harder to do if we're simply speaking at the same time. We know that when we go to the ballpark and someone begins singing at the seventh inning stretch, take me out to the ball game, we all together join in that. 40,000 people united in song. Strangers, yet they become one voice. We also know that when we go to a funeral, if they happen to play the song Amazing Grace, and it seems to be a song that people have identified over the decades and, and, and over the centuries, and they come together around that song and it unites them. There's something powerful in singing. But it's not just any song that is being called out here. It says, sing a new song. So, what is this new song? A new song is a fresh song. Not so much talking about, hey, someone set aside and go write a new song, but let it be a fresh song coming from us. Even if the song is many centuries old, what is it for us to engage that song with a freshness that the inside of us is going, I mean these words. God, I sing this in response to your initiative, what you have done. I worship you in this song. It's new. It's fresh in my heart. You know, we can sing a song in one place and have one kind of experience. Maybe you're a Taylor Swift fan and you sing all of Taylor's uh, songs in while you're showering or while you're getting dressed or getting set for the day. Or maybe you're a Garth Brooks fan and you do that. You sing his songs in the shower while, while you're getting dressed, driving down the road. But if you happen to go to the concert and you happen to be standing with all the other fans who know all the lyrics like you do and you stand there in the crowd and you sing it, it's a whole different experience. And so when we sing together, while we may enjoy singing along with a song and worshiping God in, as we're driving down the road, there's something about sharing in that song with other followers of Christ. And so here we sing this fresh song, a new understanding in response to God. So if that's the what, who's the who? Who's the who? The who is the house of Israel it's called out for us. It's, we can find it in verse 3 toward the end there. 
It says, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. So here we have this calling out, sing, Israel. Israel, sing out. You're the ones, the people of God, sing out to your God. Okay, so if that's the who, and by, by the way, um, well, we'll say that one for the next. So that's the house of, of Israel. And so the why here, what's the why? It's given to us in all three of the verses. It comes in the word salvation. The word can mean victory and deliverance. In fact, listen, as we go through the, the first three verses, we'll, we'll start halfway through verse one. Watch this. His right hand and his holy arm, the pictures of a warrior God providing in battle. His right hand and his holy arm have worked, here's the word, salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. We've made mention of this before whenever the Bible repeats something three times. It's like in bold and italics and underline. Pay attention. God saves. So the why is because God is the deliverer. God is the Savior. God is the one who has acted and delivered his people. The warrior God has moved on behalf and fought the battle in our stead. Now, as Christians living after the time of Jesus, that we know that Jesus is the great deliverer, that even his name is taken from that same word, that Jesus is the rescuer, the deliverer, the one who saves. So if we put these things together, to sing, sing a new song, that we are the people of God, and we take this, God is the deliverer, and we put that together, it might go something like this. People of God, the Lord has saved you. He has sent his son and delivered you from sin and death, from an eternity without him. He has intervened on your behalf. So sing, sing, sing until you can sing no more. Ding dong, death is dead. Christ is your savior and has set you free. Let your song be fresh and real and true. Put your mind to it. Put your heart in it for no other reason but for the fact that God has delivered you. So let's go on to the second stanza. Second stanza, verses four through six. Here's the what. Make a joyful noise. Make a joyful noise. The Hebrew here is this idea of a jubilant shouting. All right. Going out on a limb here, this is very unpresbyterian. So prepare yourselves. Does anybody have an example of what a, uh, a jubilant shouting might sound like? Yeah. I like it. That's awesome. Let's all try that one together. Yes! Uh, if you're listening at home and that came across as a shout, praise Jesus. That's good. All right, anybody else have an idea of what a jubilant shout might sound like? I love it. Do it. Let's all do it together. One, two, three. Woo! To do that in response, an authentic opening up, the declaration here is make a joyful noise. 
And then it goes on to say, play musical instruments as well. The lyre, the, the uh, trumpet, the horn. In old-timey talk, this would be something similar to strike up the band. Strike up the band. Maybe a, a little bit more contemporary, still not maybe as contemporary as some would like. It might be, let's get this party started. If that's the what, and not playing games, but that sense that there's an awareness of how God has moved, and we simply respond with an openness and awareness to what God has done. And so, who's the who? Well, here in this stanza, it is all the earth. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, which means all those who inhabit the earth, all the people who dwell in the world. There's this passage, which you may have read before. It's in Philippians. In chapter 2, there's this wonderful description that uh, the Apostle Paul provides of if we're going to be humble and, and, and carry ourselves in this world, let's, let's follow the way of Christ. And toward the end of that description, Paul provides these words. This is in verse 9 through 11 of chapter 2. He writes, Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's who Jesus is. It's who God is. That there will be a day when this happens, when God, when Christ returns, that all knees will bow, all tongues confess, not some picture of, of universalism or something like that, but, but that just the demonstration of God in people will become fully aware of who God is. So why? If this is the what and the who, what's the why? We find this then in the uh, statement here where it says in verse 6, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. The why is because God is our King. God is our King. Do you notice that this, this section of the psalm is in the present? When we talked about God has delivered, it's what God has done. What God has accomplished in the past, He has delivered. He has moved. Here, there's a recognition from the whole world in the present. God is King. God reigns. All right, so let's put it all together. It might go something like this. Hey, whole world, you might as well do it now because you will absolutely do it one day. Bend your knee to God and make a joyful noise. Give up a big, solid, enthusiastic, jubilant shout. God is king. God is in charge. Which means you're not in charge, I'm not in charge. Corporate America's not in charge. That person on the schoolyard that said those words about you, that person is not in charge. Those traumas that seem to want to keep you entrapped, they're not in charge. God is in charge over all of creation. God is king. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. So come on, world, shout it out. Here you can join me. God is king. God, come on, is king. God is king. Yes. Amen. Amen. So then we go to the third stanza. 
When we get to the third stanza, the what is this? Roar, clap, and sing. The who is this? All of creation. All of creation, it's the calling out of the oceans and, the, and all that fills them and the rivers and uh, the people who dwell in, in the world and the hills. and It's all being called out, all of creation. You know, recently we've been using uh, Alexa. I'm always careful to say the word Alexa. I don't know if it's actually going to hear me even in this room. Um, so we call out Alexa and play ocean sounds. And we hear these nice, gentle ocean sounds. That's not what's being described here. This is the big cymbals crashing, the waves slamming against rocks. Come on, world, call out to God. Roar, clap, and sing. And why? Well, in this part of the text, we discover that God is the judge, that he will come and judge. It says here, uh, verse 9, before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You might go, well, what's there to celebrate in the fact that there's a judge? That sounds ominous. But to know that judgment will be with righteousness and equity, that there is no deceit in this, that there's no unfairness, that there's no capriciousness in that, that this is God who only can judge in rightness, and in equity. And those of us that now get the privilege of living after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we know that through God's provision, all the righteousness of Jesus has been applied to our accounts. And that, that when judgment comes, the scorecard will be shown that he took all of our sins and died for them, that we would have the forgiveness of God and the righteousness of Christ. We know in Romans, we find these words that affirm even this idea of all of creation. This is from chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. It says there, Paul writes, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait. Do you get the sense? The first stanza was passed. God delivered. That second stance, God reigns. He is king. The future now. We look forward to the judge who will judge according to his very character in all righteousness and equity. If we put this all together, maybe it sounds a little like this. Hey, creation. Yeah, you trees and rocks and rivers and oceans, give it up for the Lord. Make some noise on this planet and exalt your maker. Roar, clap, sing. The God of the universe is the judge. Here comes the judge. Here comes the judge. One day Christ will come and set everything right. He'll judge with complete integrity, with righteousness and equity, with evenness and uprightness, and there will be no fault in his judgment. Anticipate his coming. Count on it. 
Look forward to it. Let him hear you roar even today. Clap and sing, for God will make all things new. So do we get the picture? Sure, we know how to behave at a ball game. We might even know how to behave at backyard barbecues and funerals. When it comes to worship, what are the cues that we're paying most attention to? You know, I think for some of us, we wrestle with the role that personal temperaments play in our experience of worship. We just simply say, you know, that's, that's just not how I'm wired. Our personal temperament becoming the, the loudest and most definitive word on our worship. But what if God's greatness is even greater than my personal temperament? What if my personal temperament is actually working to keep God's greatness at a distance, to, to, to be able to draw this hard line of going, God, you can only go so far because I want to be decent and in order in all my experiences. Maybe our cues come from our feels, and we only worship based on our feels. We like this song because it makes me feel this way. We like that experience because this morning I'm just not feeling it. I'm just not feeling it. I know God has delivered, but I'm just not feeling it. Sometimes we pay more attention to our preference for style and form. That, that unless worship is, is without all the standing up and sitting down, or only if worship is standing up and sitting down and following a form, that's the only way we can worship. But what if it has more to do with who God is and what God has done? Sometimes we pay attention to the cues simply given off by other people. We just come in and we normalize ourselves on the behavior of others. Now, of course, we want to be careful. We don't want to become a distraction to the whole gathered people. But there's that opportunity to open ourselves up inside to respond to the goodness and greatness of God. And so what if instead we looked, we looked to God and allowed ourselves, gave ourselves to respond? Maybe it's easy for us to picture ourselves at Game 7 of the World Series. The home team, so it's the bottom of the ninth, and our team is trailing by three runs. The bases are loaded. Our best hitter is coming to bat, except that he's been in a bit of a slump, and he's got a, what we heard, a little bit of a hamstring injury. And we're sitting there. It's, it's, the count is three balls, two strikes. And the pitch comes. And he smacks it out of the park. And we know how to respond there. We jump up. We're high-fiving people we don't even know. Get this. Jesus has come to the plate for you. Okay, I know that that's a really bad transitional phrase. Okay, I get it. Jesus has come to the plate for all of us. So now it's our turn to let her rip. It doesn't have to look a certain way or this way or that way, but from the inside, that the, the true worshiping of spirit and truth, God, you have moved, and I am yours, and I praise you, I worship you, I honor you. 
in response to our God being the great deliverer, the reigning king, and the coming judge. Let us worship. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are who you are. And you must look at our situation as we all organize ourselves into different denominations and groupings. And, and we do that with good intent and, and with authentic questions and wrestlings. But God, may none of that, may none of that interfere with worshiping you in spirit and in truth. That we would give our whole selves to worshiping you. To responding to your initiative of love toward us. We give you praise. Thank you for being who you are, and thank you for doing what you do, and thank you for all your promises in which we can hope. We offer ourselves to you today. In Christ's name, amen.